Hello and welcome to the PCOS Nutritionist Podcast. If we haven't met yet, I'm Claire. Welcome. Great to have you here. So I'm a registered nutritionist and I have a degree in exercise science as well and I specialize in helping women with PCOS identify what's driving their PCOS and therefore what are, so that's what we call the root cause, and then what are most likely going to be the most important changes that they can make uh, to actually address that root cause and improve their symptoms. So instead of you having to overhaul your entire lifestyle, which is pretty unsustainable and uh, can be feel quite restrictive and not pleasant, we try and pick out the five most important things that are going to have the biggest impact for you. I'm a real 80-20 person, and so I want you to have as much access to as many different foods as possible and living as quote-unquote normally as possible to so that you don't feel completely deprived and that you have to live in cotton wool. So that's a bit about me and what we do. In this episode, we're going to be going into the very controversial, very popular asked topic, which is supplements. So I get loads of questions on a daily basis and DMs on Instagram and messages about what are the best supplements for PCOS. And as you're going to hear today, there is no one list. And that's because it's all down to what's driving your PCOS. Um, and also things like, what are you eating? Like, do you have enough intake? Where do you live? Do you live far from the equator or on the equator? Do you have... Um, are your genetics and are your is your gut able to absorb vitamins and minerals from your diet and then also the different kind of things like herbs which are not not naturally occurring for us phytophenols and antioxidants which are also more naturally occurring in in our body and in and food but not at the quantities that we might want to take to actually have an effect on our body so that's what we're talking about today and without further ado let's just jump in and get cracking on that so one of the most common questions i get asked is what are the best supplements for pcs and my response is always the same, very frustrating answer, which is, it depends. Okay, so it depends on so many factors. What supplements might help you is, like, dependent on, firstly, what's driving your PCOS or your PCOS root cause or causes. Do you have suboptimal levels of vitamins and minerals or a full-blown deficiency even? And are you trying to conceive or are there other things that you're trying to achieve? So I think you can waste, end up wasting a whole ton of money on supplements that you don't need or might do, be doing more harm than good. Um, and actually Chantal, who was in our podcast last season, um, is a really good example of that. So she tells on, even on the podcast, um, explains that she found out that she had PCOS when she was about 19. And after years of not seeing her period much and horrible acne, she took a trip to the gynecologist and they... Um, she said the gynecologist trip really scared me and she said in fact I remember laying on the table getting the ultrasound when the insensitive lab technician blurted out wow while examining her ovaries and when she tackled him about his response he just responded with a question he said have you ever had children and she said when I responded no he just basically clucked and shook his head and told me to get dressed and she was like oh my god I just cried my whole way home I didn't know the meaning of it all um, so when she went, anyway, long story short, went back to the gynecologist, um, said, okay, you've got PCOS. Um, but because she's quite lean, the advice wasn't to lose weight. She just basically put on birth control and acne. Um, she didn't, uh, you know, to try and get a monthly bleed, but wasn't given any other information. So she had years of IBS, eczema, thinning hair, really high anxiety levels. 
um, and then no luck conceive well no luck for quite a while conceiving eventually was put on clomid did um, and did conceive um, but developed like preeclampsia after about only 16 weeks so was put on bed rest so all of these horrible symptoms and she because no one was giving her the answer of course she went on this relentless search online to try and find other answers more natural kind of approaches and things like that and that's when she would come across so many people saying um, oh, I took Vitex and it helped my PCOS or inositol or um, no, you need maca root powder. And she, so she would just buy and buy. She was like, okay, cool, sweet, order, fine. It can only like help, right? Or surely, it's, and well, even if it doesn't, it's only 20 or $30. Um, but when, so when we started working together, we identified that her insulin wasn't working properly um, and that... Um, also, her stress hormones were quite high as well. She's in quite a high corporate professional job. And so when we did that, lots of things started to improve. So even just not just the like PCOS symptoms, but like her IBS and her eczema, surprisingly. Um, her heart palpitations were gone, no longer really anxious. Did And um, her response to me was, she was like, oh my God, I wasted so much money on those supplements that just weren't treating that root cause or weren't really having any effect because they didn't know what was causing it. So that's why I say at some point we can just waste so much money and we think, oh yeah, it's only 20 or $30 here and there. But actually if we just saved that money and invested it in actually figuring out what that root cause was, then we would save ourselves not just money, but so much time and heartache and time just looking, you know, like time's spent down the Google rabbit warren trying to figure this all out ourselves. So there isn't one list of supplements I can tell you to take. Um, there are some guidelines based on the various root causes. And so in the PCS protocol, we do go through this. And I'm certainly not of the opinion that all supplements are a waste of money. I think that they can be incredibly helpful and often necessary if you are, have suboptimal levels or are deficient. Um, but I am of the opinion that when it comes to vitamins and minerals, if we can get most from our food sources, then we're going to absorb them much better, we're going to be able to digest them much better, and therefore they're going to have a much bigger impact on our health, right? So um, they should come in, you know, supplements should be only just to supplement a very good diet at the, at the or where we cannot get it. So for example, you know, here in New Zealand in the winter, we're very far from the equator, we're going to be, we're not going to be getting any vitamin D, so we need to be taking that. Same thing if you live in the UK or um, Europe or North America at the moment, you also are far from the equator. It is your winter time and moment, you will need to take some vitamin D. So there are exceptions, but if we can get as much from our food as possible, then we're going to absorb it way better. Um, but I do, like I went through university nutrition and the advice to us through that was that Patients should not, or clients should not need to take vitamins and minerals if they've got a healthy diet. And I think that's not true, right? I think that is that we can aim to eat and get as much more food as possible. But in most cases, I see quite um, good benefit and a lot of research as well to support some vitamins and minerals in higher doses to support things like insulin resistance and making sure that we've got enough there and also too there's a lot of reasons like for example if a patient is taking metformin you're going so if you're taking metformin 
that that is known to leach folate and B12 from your body. So you're going to need, going to, need to take more to counteract that effect. So there are so many other reasons why we might need these. And then that's just the vitamins and minerals. And then we have things like herbs, which are not naturally occurring um, in our body, that we can, but we can use them to have a really positive effect. And they're called adaptogenic herbs, some of them. So they cause our body to make favorable adaptions um, to help us. So I'm, I'm in favor, um, but I'm in favor of using them in the right instances for the right, um, for the right conditions, really. So first of all, there's, when I say supplements, it's just what, what I actually mean is vitamins, minerals, herbs, antioxidants, polyphenols, amino acids, but gosh, like that is a long winded explanation. So I'm just going to say supplements, all right? But I by no means mean that you have to get them from a pill, Ideally, if you can get them in food form, that's going to be so much better for you. Right, so vitamins and minerals. So vitamins and minerals are naturally occurring substances in our body. So think things like vitamin A, E, C, D, biotin, which is another B vitamin, inositol, another B vitamin, and then you've got selenium, zinc, copper, magnesium, iron, etc., which are all minerals, right? And that's just a small number. That's not um, a infinite list. So, uh, or sorry, not a finite list. So vitamins and minerals are critical for your body to work properly. They are cofactors in every system in your body. So if you don't have enough vitamins and minerals, your body will just start to shut down systems. And that's called a rate limiting factor. So most vitamins and minerals are essential, which also means that your body can't make them. We've got to get them from our food or from supplements. So... Just in terms of, I always think of this analogy in terms of thinking about what vitamins and minerals actually do and how they can be a rate limiting factor. So imagine that your body is a toy car factory. I know, very specific, but just imagine this. So imagine that the factory normally produces 100 cars an hour, but that's dependent on how many parts the factory has. So if the factory has only enough wheels for 40 cars per hour, it will only be able to produce 40 cars per hour. Okay, so think about that. You cannot produce a car without wheels. It's impossible. So that's your rate limiting factor is the number of like parts that you have. So in your body, that parts is the number of vitamins and minerals that you have. So this might show up as a process not being able to work as efficiently as possible. So if you don't have enough vitamin B6, your liver won't be able to clear as many toxins per hour. Or in the case of growing a baby, it won't have enough to grow the tissue. So the formation of the neural tube, which goes from, um, it's basically your brain and spinal cord, and it's the entire nervous system actually grows from this, um, is dependent on how much folate you have. But not just folate, I mean, it's other, it's like choline, B12 and other B vitamins as well. Folate gets in, well, you might have heard it as folic acid, which is a synthetic form of folate. Folate gets a lot of airtime, or folic acid, but it's actually, there are, it's not the only one. There's, as I said, there's B12 and choline, which is like often forgotten, but equally as important. Um, and so if you don't have enough, well, you need that to help that neural tube grow properly. And for that, um, the reason for this is that you don't have enough folate that your body can't make encode the genes, so that's your DNA and RNA, to actually make that neural tube. So that's why it's super important. So that's vitamins and minerals. Herbs, on the other hand, are not natural inhabitants of our body. So instead, we use them because they make our body change or adapt in a certain way. Herbs have been used in Chinese medicine uh, for centuries. So I say Chinese medicine, but it's a lot of other cultures as well. Ayurveda is a really common one too. 
And so through now modern research, we can are beginning to understand why they've been used and why they've had such a favorable effect. Um, so for example, it's, research has shown that herbs like berberine can make our, more, our body more sensitive to insulin. So it's having a favorable effect on our body and, and insulin. Um, and then we have things like poly, um, so phytophenols and antioxidants. So they're another category of, um, so they're, they're, well, we'll call them again as supplements. So these are naturally occurring compounds in the food that we eat, but have been extracted and are used in much higher quantities than what you would find in food. So one example is, that you might have heard about is resveratrol, which is a red wine compound. So it's been shown in studies to help improve insulin sensitivity. But the amount that you need to have the effect is like the equivalent of like 300 glasses of wine. So there's no need for me to explain why that's not going to be uh, desirable to get from your food. So that's why it needs to be extracted. Um, antioxidants are molecules that help counteract oxidative stress in the body. So oxidative stress occurs when you have more free radicals um, producing oxidative stress than what your body's natural oxidant, antioxidant defenses can cope with. So, you know, if you have a lot of chronic inflammation happening in your body, you're going to have a lot of oxidative damage. Um, and so you're going to need more antioxidants to cope with that. So antioxidants are things like N-acetylcysteine, glutathione, and vitamin C. This is not dissimilar to the way we would use medications and drugs, right? Like if you develop a really serious Giardia infection, um, a bacterial um, infection, then maybe you might need antibiotics to help your immune system clear that infection and kind of get back on top of things. Um, but it doesn't mean that you need to stay on antibiotics for the entire year. Well, I hope not. It's more just using it for a course and then allowing your body to get back. Because if we didn't, maybe your immune system wouldn't be able to clear that by itself. Or maybe while it was, it would take it much longer. And while it was all its resources were diverted to clearing the Giardia attack, at the same time, you also were exposed to uh, a virus, a, you know, in, or influenza or something like that. And therefore you, because your immune system was fighting the Giardia, it wasn't able to fight the influenza and you then you go on and develop influenza. So the exactly same mechanism of, well, it's not the same mechanism of action, of course, like um, drugs work in a very different action to say what herbs do, but the same kind of principles apply that we're using it for a course and to, to have a specific outcome, and then we don't necessarily have to take them all the time. In a similar vein, what we've got to think about is we've got to think about using supplements for a specific purpose. So asking the general question, like what's the best supplements for PCOS, is like asking a question like what drug is best? It's like, well, in what context? If the context is what drug is best for uh, diabetes or what drug is best for heart disease then we can answer that right but if you just say what drug is best or um, then you could be like well I don't know maybe a statin hopefully no one says that but anyway maybe they would say that and um, and then it would be like well but this patient's got a headache he doesn't have a heart disease and so therefore that's not going to be the right answer and the same thing if a woman has insulin resistance in PCOS then the answer might be, well, inositol is fantastic and has been proven, shown in many, many research studies now that it has, it can have a really good impact on insulin and bring insulin down and therefore improving PCOS symptoms. But 
if a woman doesn't have insulin resistance, it's probably not going to help much at all. And so, and they'd be much better off taking maybe their stress hormones are, are really impacted and therefore they might be better taking some um, ashwagandha or rhodiola to have like an impact on their stress hormones or help their body adapt to that high level of stress. So you've really got to understand the context. Again, it goes all, all back to that root cause and figuring out what this is for you. Um, and therefore you can stop wasting so much money and, and actually find stuff that's going to be helpful for you. But as well as the root cause thing, we definitely want to make sure that you've got enough vitamins and minerals. As I said, those are the things that are naturally occurring in your body. And we often, while we might not be clinically deficient, we might have uh, suboptimal levels, right? So these, so vitamins and minerals, um, we want to try and get as much as possible from our diet. There is definitely special benefit from getting vitamins and minerals from real food, uh, that we just don't get when it's extracted from machines. And that's due to things like nutrients affect each other's absorption. So you might have heard that iron and vitamin C have a special relationship. So if you take iron with vitamin C, it'll be better absorbed. Similarly, zinc and copper and magne- manganese uh, and iron have similar relationship. These are interdependent nutrients that tend to appear in foods together, but not necessarily in isolated supplements. And the reason they appear in... Um, in food together is because mother nature is not stupid she knows what helps absorption and she makes that in the food which is incredible the way also similarly the way that nutrients have been produced also affects the way um, or the effect of that nutrient so for example trans fat this this is not like a vitamin mineral but just as an example trans fat you might have heard of trans fat it's the fat that is um, really dangerous for us and it's often produced in the manufacturing of products right so that you think about um, especially when oils are heated kind of more than once or very like hydrogenated oils so think about um, oil that's been at the fish and chip shop that's been continually reheated and reheated and not new stuff or um, biscuits and and other manufactured goods so whereas trans fats produced in cows are beneficial for health um, the ones produced in the processing of your average brisket is quite harmful. So you've got to realize the same thing applies to nutrients. Um, and so other thing is that research has shown in most cases, whole foods are far more effective than supplements. For example, people eating broccoli, cauliflower and cabbage and kale have less free radicals in their body interdependent, sorry, independent of the nutrients they consumed so it was you know if even if you broke down the amount that they were having and said okay well they had a hundred antioxidants um it didn't matter whether someone had a hundred or whether someone had 50 if they were eating that vegetable they were still going to have much better with much less free radicals okay um same thing eating whole tomatoes is much better for prostate tissue than taking a supplement like the supplement lycopene which is the extracted thing from tomatoes that helps prostate um, and so therefore it's not necessarily just about that one nutrient it's actually about the the whole food form so on the whole that's why I say we should be trying to get as many nutrients as possible from real food and then supplementing so using it for what it's actually intended to do supplementing the essential nutrients that we absolutely can't get from our diet or just not in the quantities that we need um, and yeah, or the you know quantities that we can reasonably expect to get from our diet, um, or things like if you're vegetarian or vegan who have allergies or intolerances, or you're a picky eater and don't want to eat a variety of real food. Uh, on other situations, for example, if you live as I said before far from the equator, 
um, then you might need to take that. Or if you have um, not just deficient levels, so that's what I call when you when you get your blood test results and it's like, oh yeah, you're iron deficient. It's like, do you have actually optimal levels of iron to be able to function effectively and to be able to not be tired when every day when you get home from work and be having to have a nap before dinner and to you know like just actually be in optimal health rather than just surviving so that's where we might want to additionally have some extra nutrients to make sure that you're in the optimal range rather than just not have a disease like not have iron deficiency anemia so what i mean by optimal levels is that these are not what you'd see on the lab reference range um being deficient and being having optimal levels are not the same thing, and your doctor won't understand this as they haven't been taught this, right? This is not in the medical curriculum. They'll just use the lab reference ranges to make sure that you're not deficient or going to develop kind of a disease. So actually, interestingly, you might be surprised to know that the lab reference ranges are not based on actually what's optimal health. They're based on what's common for the population at the moment. So what they do is they take a few thousand people and they measure, say, their vitamin D, and then they create a bell curve from the data, and that's how they get the normal range. So what they'll do is they'll, you know, if, you're in, if you've done statistics before, they'll, t- they'll draw that bell curve, and then they'll take 90%, so they'll whip off the top and bottom um, 5%, those are out of range, and then the rest, 90%, is your normal reference range. But you obviously see the issue here, right? That range has nothing to do with how much you need to function properly. Remember that rate-limiting toy car example, but instead what's common in the population at the moment. So that, so if what you know what we're saying now is normal would rely on the fact that most of the population have optimal levels but we know this is not the case we know that vitamin and mineral levels in the soil and in our food have been declining over the last century due to practices like not rotating crops and genetic modifications and artificial ripening so if our food has less nutrients it makes sense that we have less nutrients too We also know things like chronic health, like chronic inflammation, can affect our ability to absorb different nutrients. So uh, we know that people living on the equator should not have any issue with getting enough vitamin D because they are exposed to the sun all year round, which is at the right angle for for it to hit their skin and therefore their skin to, to convert that into active vitamin D. We know from a lot of studies that many people living at the equator even though if they're getting exposure to sunshine, cannot convert that to vitamin D because they've got chronic inflammation. And that inflammation in the skin when the sun hits there in their body is stopping that conversion to vitamin D. So they're having to also supplement. We also know that um, people with like irritable bowel syndrome are going to be more at risk of uh, not absorbing a lot of nutrients because their gut lining is unable to absorb that because it's chronically inflamed or not able to actually absorb those nutrients. So when we think about optimal levels, it's we've got to think about it in a few different ways. So either that you're not getting enough through your intake. So for example, that would be someone who maybe is a vegan and uh, they, unless they're supplementing, they will be deficient in vitamin B12 over time because 
vitamin B12 only comes from animal sources. And so you cannot get enough vitamin B12 from your diet. So unless you're supplementing, you're going to be deficient. So we look at intake first. We then look at absorption. So are you actually able to absorb what you're eating? Or is it that just going straight through you and your body is not absorbing it? Same thing, we know that genetics can in- interact and interfere with our ability to absorb some nutrients. We do know that some people are genetically less able to absorb things like iron. And therefore, they're going to be consistently at risk of uh, iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. So this is why it's really crucial. I I advise everybody to get some basic mineral and vitamin testing done to see if they do have optimal levels. And sometimes these can't just be blood work because blood often doesn't uh, show what's actually happening in the body because what that looks at is what's in your blood whereas most a lot of minerals are bound up in your cells and so for example magnesium if you get a magnesium blood test it's an awful indicator of what's actually in your body um, I would often recommend uh, to women that they uh, look at a magnesium supplement because most I think it's about it's like two-thirds of western society are not getting optimal levels of magnesium from their diet Um, And magnesium, again, is a critical uh, mineral for so many processes, including our insulin to function properly. And, um, you know, and it can happen with our energy levels and muscle contraction and stuff like that. So if you are not able to get it from your diet, um, but many women will go and say, well, I'm not deficient in magnesium. I've had my blood work tested. And it's like, because the magnesium in your blood is only like 5% of the magnesium in your body. Most of it is bound up in cells. So um, that's why maybe like a, a urine test, like I often do something called an organics acids test, and it measures urine, it measures your metabolites, and that can tell us a lot more about your optimal levels of nutrients than in the blood. But other blood tests can be really um, can be really accurate. So vitamin D blood test is a very good one. And I definitely recommend everyone get that done at least once or twice a year to make sure they're in the optimal range, not just not vitamin D deficient, but actually optimal levels. And uh, vitamin, so other ones that can be really good is ferritin. So ferritin is your stores of iron and that's super important. So I often would do this for a woman who's suffering from hair loss because we know that iron is critical for hair growth. So if you're suffering from hair loss, you want to make sure that you've got good optimal levels of ferritin. Again, the functional, sorry, the medical reference range for that would be like a low of 30. Whereas actually we know that a woman that to have good enough enough ferritin in their, so in their body would want to have levels above 80. Right, so it just shows you how different that could be. They could not, they might not be clinically deficient, but it's just that they might not have optimal levels for their hair. So what I tend to do with, say, my woman in the PCS protocol is we'll measure a few key nutrients that we know we can get from the blood, and then others where we know, for example, that they're very unlikely to get enough from their diet. We'll use a supplement there. Um, or if they want to go and get further testing and work with someone one-on-one, they could go and do something like an organics acids test to see what they might be lacking. But the, I just so while the list would be infinite if I went through all of the research for the different kind of root causes, the different uh, vitamins and minerals and herbs and stuff for the, and how they affect PCOS and different root causes, there are a few that I want to kind of touch on that I think are a really good and those that I see commonly asked about that I would not use very regularly. So first of all, those that I get lots of questions about that I would very rarely use. One of them would be maca. So I often get asked about maca powder or people see putting it 
people putting it in their smoothies and stuff. And I think often this is because you'll see it advertised online as helping fertility. And it can, but in the opposite way that's going to help most women with PCOS. So the way that maca um, can help improve fertility is by telling your body to release more luteinizing hormone. So luteinizing hormone is the one that shoots up in the middle of your cycle and it is what releases the egg out into the fallopian tube. So if you don't have a um, enough of a rise in LH, then that can affect ovulation and therefore you'll have fertility issues. So they have done a study. So it's, Macca's has been used traditionally in Peru and in Andean regions to enhance fertility. Um, and they didn't really know why it, how it helped here. And they did a study back in 2013, um, just to note it was a rat study, so it wasn't on humans. And they found that Macca significantly increased the surge of luteinizing hormone from your brain. So your brain was telling... Um, was releasing this and that then helped um, increase fertility because then therefore they were ovulating. But the thing in PCOS is that we have most in most cases too much LH. So one thing that insulin, high insulin does is that it increases luteinizing hormone, right? And what this does is that it actually gets too high in the ratio of follicle stimulating hormone and follicle stimulating hormone is the one that grows your egg to size. So if you think about your ovary being a sack of all these baby eggs and your body will just be like that one, I'm going to choose that one. This is going to be the one that we are going to grow to size because it's, it doesn't hedge its bets. It goes, right, if I just hedge my bets and try and grow all of these follicles or baby eggs to size, then none of them are going to reach size. We're going to pick one that we think is going to be the dominant one and we're going to grow that. And so follicle stimulating hormone will do that. And then, and then at the point in our cycle where um, the brain gets triggered, it's like, right, it's time to, time to ovulate. It will release that luteinizing hormone and that'll shoot up and then release that dominant egg out into the fallopian tubes ready for sperm to meet and create a zygote right but in PCOS we actually have the it's what we found is that the ratio of that follicle stimulating hormone to luteinizing hormone is the really important thing that says we when we whether we can actually ovulate or not and so if insulin is causing the LH to be too high then your body will just go, nah, sorry, there's something going wrong here. We're just not going to release that egg. And then it will discard that dominant follicle, say, nope, you didn't make it. Sorry, mate. And that will what is what appears as cysts on your ovaries. It's just those discarded eggs that when they didn't reach, within they didn't ovulate, your body will then just discard that one and try a new one. Okay, the result is that we have very long cycles because our body is consistently trying to ovulate multiple times in a cycle. And then it's going to be really hard for us to know when we're actually ovulating unless we're like measuring our temperature and cervical fluid and stuff that I teach in educated program. Um, but unless we know that's going to be much harder to um, actually conceive. So what I'm concerned about is if I see people saying uh, that they're using MACA to help improve fertility, I'm like, well, you've got to know the reason for why you're not getting pregnant. Because if it is the, in fact the that your LH is too high, the MACA is making things worse. Likely. So I that was one one nutrient that I would almost never use um, for PCOS. 
especially when it comes to insulin resistance and PCOS. Whereas if a woman uh, was more hypothalamic amenorrhea, so hypothalamic amenorrhea um, can look very similar to PCOS, you can still have cysts on the ovaries, you can have really irregular periods, or in fact not be um, not have any cycle whatsoever. And this can be because your LH is not getting high enough. And so in that context, yeah, maca might be really helpful as well as addressing the root cause. Like are they eating enough? Are they eating enough carbohydrates, enough fat, things like that. So that's where that can be, could be really helpful. But this is why I am really, I say to you guys to caution what you read online because often supplements will, will pick up on this one research and say, yeah, we improve fertility. But unless you actually know the mechanism behind that, you could be going down the wrong Similarly, I see a lot of women asking about Vitex. Vitex, other names, is Chasteberry or Vitex agnus uh, castus. And similarly, Vitex, so Vitex is a herb. And same thing, it actually increases LH. And so if you have already quite high LH because you've got insulin resistance and that's stimulating your body to produce more LH, then taking Vitex might actually make things worse. So I'm sure you'll always see lots of examples, women talking about how it's helped them, and uh, and therefore it can be really easy to just jump on that and be like, great, well, let's give it a try. Surely there's no harm in giving it a try, and you know, it's $20 or $30, who cares? I'm happy to pay that if it, if it you know, could work. Um, and I totally get that. Man, we can be in some really down, terrible, desperate situations, and I've been there not from a fertility perspective, but from just a desperation to control other symptoms. And so I know how easy it is to just be like, right, I'm just going to give this a go. But in many cases, that could actually be making things worse. So I think while uh, the initial upfront cost of working with someone who knows what they're doing with supplements is way more than what you would pay, you know, $20, $30 for, the long-term effect, not just on cost, but also time and the potential ramifications on your body can be like well worth the money that you might spend up front doing that. So this is the other thing too is that a lot of people might be on the right track. So for example, um, one nutrient that I would use very commonly with women with PCOS with some insulin resistance is one called inositol. So inositol is actually from the B vitamin family and it has been shown in many studies to improve insulin resistance and also symptoms like long menstrual cycles, hair loss, excessive facial hair or body hair, acne and fertility issues. So what uh, inositol, what they found is that inositol is really important for uh, our insulin sensitivity. So it helps improve our cells insulin sensitivity. Um, And also women with PCOS have been found to have deficiencies in myonositol and possibly the, because there's two types of inositol, myonositol and dechironositol. And what they think is that we may, there might be something genetic there or some uh, enzyme that we are not able to convert the myo into dechiro. And that might be what's going on too. So there's, there was a big meta-analysis compiled of all the trials run between 1994 to 2007 and this actually compared myonositol to metformin. So metformin is the drug that's most commonly prescribed for improving uh, insulin sensitivity. And so they compared them and they found that they were equally effective in reducing fasting insulin, 
reducing testosterone and reducing BMI, so weight as well. And obviously you now know from what I've talked about listening to this podcast is that the only reason you're gaining weight is because the insulin, which generally um, it's the insulin that's actually causing that. So that's why it has an effect on uh, reducing weight. So the, and really interesting, the researchers that did that meta-analysis said there was strong evidence of an increased risk of adverse events among women receiving metformin compared to those receiving myonostal. So basically what they were saying is this is probably a lower risk option. Um, there might be still some women that need metformin as well, or maybe actually further research has shown that if women are taking metformin, then taking it with myonostal is more effective. So for those women that are on metformin, taking it with myonostal can be, you know, can make that more effective. So it's not, it doesn't have to be a one or the other. But also just if you look, if we're looking at this in terms of risk, and unfortunately we don't know too much about the long-term effects of constant uh, metformin intakes. There hasn't been any long-term studies which look at women taking metformin for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, which is, I mean, I was prescribed metformin at 25. So, you know, what would that have, what would my body have looked like at 50 had I been on that continuously? And that could be fine. It could be perfectly fine. Um, But we just don't know that yet because there haven't been any long-term trials. So that's why I think the researchers there summarized and said, well, the other other adverse events in women is that often women get really bad, well this is not just women, it's actually anyone taking uh, metformin, have very bad gastro symptoms. So I was just actually working with a patient yesterday and she said that when she was put on metformin she had diarrhea for six weeks and then eventually she was like I can't keep taking this and that's not an uncommon thing. So having gastro symptoms and that means that if you've got uh, diarrhea for six weeks it means you're not going to be absorbing a whole bunch of nutrients you're not going to be absorbing um any pretty much anything that you're eating and so this is why it's not just important to look at the effect on insulin but actually can that individual tolerate that drug or not so inositol would be really um one that i'd be very commonly using for insulin resistance in pcos um but and again it's one that we can't really test for in the blood we wouldn't we wouldn't do a blood test um, because it wouldn't show that up. We would just use it and see if that improved their symptoms, um, say if it brought down their insulin, their testosterone. And generally we're using it in combination, well actually we are always using it in combination with changes in diet, changes in exercise, sleep, other things that we know actually improve insulin sensitivity as well. So it's a combination approach rather than just one thing that we're doing. So those are kind of three examples of things that I wouldn't normally um, use so maca powder and vitex and then one that I do very commonly use for PCOS and insulin resistance which is inositol so I hope that's helped you understand a bit more about what supplements are where they come from like the vitamins and minerals that are naturally occur in our body but also herbs that we can use to have a, um, an impact and change the way that our body reacts then there's the things like phytophenols and antioxidants, which uh, can be naturally occurring in food or in our body, but just in quantities that are much smaller than what would be in supplements, but how we could potentially use them for a period of time to have an impact, say, for example, making our body more sensitive to insulin or helping our body fight free radical damage with the antioxidants. Then why there is not one list of supplements. So I can't just say here are the you know top ones that have been researched. There are 
literally hundreds of nutrients and vitamins and minerals and supplements that have been researched for PCOS with a lot of, there's a lot of conflicting information and results on them. And I think a lot of that's to do with the fact that they don't, when the researchers do it, they just take women who have been diagnosed with PCOS. They don't actually know what that root causes. And so how are we going to know what actually works when we're, uh, we're not actually addressing that root cause? And then um, why some supplements might actually be harmful or more harmful than taking nothing if we're taking the wrong thing for the wrong root cause. And that example there was uh, Vitex and also maca powder. So that is all on the supplements for now. I will We will be doing more of these and we'll look at really particular questions and stuff like that. But that's just a bit of a broad overview because we haven't talked about it yet on the podcast. So to give you a just a, a base understanding and then we can go into more detail about different the pros and cons of different supplements and vitamins minerals and stuff from here on in as always if you want to find out more about your personal situation so what's driving your pcs then that's what we do inside the pcs protocol again as i mentioned in this uh episode we also look at some things like some basic vitamin and mineral intake and whether you've got optimal levels rather than just being within the normal reference range um, because that's not as I said that's not something that your doctor is going to be looking for they're going to make making sure that you haven't got the clinical deficiencies but not whether you've got the optimal levels to actually function and for say your insulin receptor to function properly um, we also talk about all of the research for the different um, sort of addressing the root causes for the different supplements in there too and I do actually provide you with pdfs of, of all the research so you can actually see what how strong the evidence is for, um, say, inositol versus berberine for insulin resistance, and then um, also for other other like root causes as well for thyroid, for stress hormones, things like that. So, um, if you want to come and join us, all the information is at thepcsnutritionist.com forward slash the PCS protocol, or just hit program from the main menu at the pcsnutritionist.com website. How lovely to talking to you today. I hope you have a fantastic week and we'll catch you again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. Now stand by for our disclaimer. The information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information, including about the PCOS Nutritionist products and services, and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat, or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.